Hey everyone, and welcome to Bury the Hatchet. I'm your host, Brian Enstein. You know, tackling touchy subjects in the right way is a special skill, and frankly, not everybody has it. But the inability to understand people we disagree with is tearing apart our communities, our friendships, and our families. But we can do better. We must do better. If you're ready to talk about hard things without the hard feelings, join me as we rediscover the lost arts of listening and reconciliation. Join me as we learn to bury the hatchet. Hey guys, welcome to episode number three. Thank you for being here. Um, I'm excited. First of all, I have one guest here with me instead of my usual two. Everybody say hello to my wife, Emily. Emily, say hello to the people. Hi, people. Thank you. Uh, We're also... What? What? (laughs) What are you giggling about? (laughs) Nothing. Nothing, nothing. Okay. Uh, we're we're going to do things a little bit differently today. Uh, if you pay any attention at all to the news and to social media, there I mean, there's so many buzzwords that have been thrown around lately. The word polarized or polarization gets thrown around all the time. And, it, you know, you, with a little bit of perspective, we realize that political polarization is not a new thing. It's a common part of human experience and not just in in our country in the United States, um, but throughout the world in all cultures and all histories, there have always been things or ideas or forces that have sort of tugged at the fabric of any society. And that polarization is really easy to happen. So what we want to do is we want to take a little dive into the past and look at some historical examples of some of these conflicts and differences and look at them through the eyes of the people who lived it and see if we can't vicariously bury their hatchets. Um, hey. hey, see what I did there? One of my favorite eras to talk about is the era of the the American Revolution. Mine um, too. Hers too. My favorite time period in history. There are just so many things going on. <laughs> and, and, and not only that, but at least here in the United States, there's almost like a, like a mythology built up around so many of the people uh, and so many of the events, so many of the things that happened. That it, it it almost it, it almost becomes a, a a bit of a chore sometimes to try and separate what's the popular conception of this person or what happened versus what actually happened, you know, versus the way those people saw it. So that's kind of what we wanted to dissect right now. And not only that, but you know, it, if you want a polarized society, it doesn't get any more polarized than. North America during the American Revolution, <laughs> literally a civil war. It, it's often portrayed as sort of a war of ideas of sort of Republican or Democratic ideals versus, you know, the, the monarchy and sort of an aristocratic society. And, and certainly there was a lot of that. Obviously, the people who took part in the revolution, no matter which side they came down on, did uh, there obviously was a different of ideas there. But what we want to explore today is the fact that it was also an intensely human conflict, and there was a lot of raw emotion involved. Um, and contrary to the way you know it's it's often depicted in history, uh, it was it was not a clean, easy, or simple thing. Can um, I can I give the typical depiction? Please. 
Okay, if you grew up in the United States of America, particularly in the North, uh, history looks like this. Uh, Britain was really mean, and King George was awful, and everybody hated him. And then this group of patriots got together and were like, hey, King George is really mean, and we should be our own country. And everybody said, yeah. And then they threw the British tea in the harbor and said, drink that, Brits. And then it started a war, and then we won, thanks to George Washington. And everybody was happy. Oh, and uh, hot dogs and brats on 4th of July. Always. Always. And fireworks. Yeah, and fireworks. Don't forget that, because America, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And if we're going to tell the full story, um, in recent years, I know that there's been a lot of schools and a lot of textbooks pushing, pushing exactly the opposite idea, that the British system of government was basically the best in the world. Uh, the American colonists had greater liberty and a higher standard of living than anyone else on earth. They, of all people, had no reason to be rebelling against their paternalistic and benevolent government. They were basically just power-hungry and, and greedy merchant-class types and the colonists who thought they could get even richer by striking it out on their own politically, and they sort of duped the rest of the population into going along with it. And also the colonists in the South just thought that they could uh, make more money off of the slave trade if they were free from the British government. So it was it was really like one of the most evil things that mankind has ever done is sort of the opposite approach. So you either get, you, you see it either through Rose-colored or dung-colored glasses. <laughs> dung-colored. Poop-colored. Insert your own word here. Um, so when I think of this time period, um, everybody always says the Founding Fathers. Is that who we're talking about today? Yes. Which, as I'm sure you know, is a it, it's, it's a term that's almost so broad as to be meaningless. Because when people say the Founding Fathers believe this or they did that, who we call the Founding Fathers are usually the people who were behind some of those important documents, like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. But And they all agreed on their view for how this country should be, and we've right. just been perverting it ever since. Right, and there was this big old consensus about how things were supposed to be, which is, of course, nonsense. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's Sorry. what we're planning to explore here. So what, what what we want to focus on specifically, and I apologize for the long introduction, we will dive into the meat right here. As I'm sure you know, um, obviously there were what we call the, the patriots, the American patriots, were those who were in favor of independence from Great Britain. Most of them, not all of them. There were some who considered themselves patriots who, who had a different view, and we'll explore that in a bit. But Sort of on the on the opposite end of the spectrum, we had what were called loyalists. Um, these were American colonists who did not want to be separate from Great Britain. And many of them not only gave speeches, oftentimes at the peril of their lives, but some of them actively took up arms um, and either joined the British Army outright or formed their own loyalist militias um, in order to combat the the people who they saw as terrorists and traitors and rebels mobsters mobsters the troublemakers who were destroying rioters rioters yeah exactly so uh, kind of two two ends of the spectrum and that's where that's what we're going to be exploring here before we dive into the stories and we have a 
couple really, really interesting stories here of people that uh, you probably don't know about, and that's what's going to make it interesting. I want to read real quick um, a, a quotation from one of my favorite historians and one who has um, covered this era of history probably better than anyone else I have read. Uh, he's a very famous historian by the name of David McCullough. He wrote the absolutely phenomenal masterpiece, 1776. I highly encourage you to read that if you have not. Also the author of John Adams, one of my favorite biographies. But uh, in, a, in an address that he gave um, at Brigham Young University in 2005, um, if you feel like looking up the whole text, it's called The Glorious Cause of America. He gives a lot of his views on uh, how he approaches history. But I just want to read this, this one section here for you. He says, one of the hardest and I think the most important realities of history to convey to students or readers of books or viewers of television documentaries is that nothing ever had to happen the way it happened. Any great past event could have gone off in any number of different directions for any number of different reasons. We should understand that history was never on a track. It was never preordained that it would turn out as it did. Very often we are taught history as if it were predetermined, and if that way of teaching begins early enough and is sustained through our education, we begin to think that it had to have happened as it did. We think that there had to have been a revolutionary war, that there had to have been a declaration of independence, that there had to have been a constitution, but never was that so. In history, chance plays a part again and again. Character counts over and over. Personality is often the determining factor in why things turn out the way they do. Furthermore, nobody has ever lived in the past. Jefferson, Adams, George Washington, they didn't walk around saying, isn't this fascinating, living in the past? Aren't we picturesque in our funny clothes? They were living in the present, just as we do. The great difference is that it was their present, not ours. And just as we don't know how things are going to turn out, they didn't either. That's the end of the quote from, from David McCullough. I love the, aren't we picturesque in our funny clothes? Right. That's my favorite part. Right. Of that. And, and, that's, and that's so true. I mean, like when we, when we first try to sort of introduce these historical topics to children, we almost present them as kind of figures in a costume pageant that here are the great figures of history and this is their role. This is what they played. They were the experienced revolutionaries who flew in for this biggest of all events, which is... Which is, I mean, the more you understand about it, the more you realize how much they were improvising and making things up as they went. Right, and kids will do, like, plays and stuff of history, and most of what transforms that child into George Washington is putting on the curly wig. and Right. Curly wig, big long coat, you're now General Washington. Yeah. And, like, it's it's not the clothes that make it. Like, it's almost, it's interesting. You can cut this part out if it's not relevant. But I like to imagine what it would be like if those people lived now. Because I think this idea of, like, what history looked like and the funny clothes thing is, is such a thing in our brain. Like, we view history through what we know about what it looked like. But if if those people lived today, what are the decisions that they would make? And I think that we discount a lot of, like, choice and character that goes into what history is. Like, the choices of history were made by actual people. It wasn't, like, lines in a script. And so if those people lived today, they would also make choices. And that's 
that's that's how it makes sense to my brain. Like if I could take those people from that period and bring them now, it would seem more real. Somehow from my view, looking back, it doesn't seem real because it's already done and it happened and it can't change. But if those people were living now, I could see how it could change because my reality is I can change my course of life just as they could choose theirs. Right. And we see our present reality as being nuanced and complex. And there's so much going on in our modern world and all of our relationships are so complicated. And we tend to see things in the past as being simpler, that those people just their lives just weren't as complicated. Their relationships weren't as complicated. Their ideas weren't as evolved. And when in reality, we just think that it's simpler because, because we, we don't, are, we're not there. We, we weren't don't, there. And we don't so see we all the details. We are drawing conclusions about logical things that they must have been thinking, and then it seems very simple. But that's we always say even now, like in our own lives, twenty years ago things were simpler. Ten years ago things were simpler. In hindsight's twenty twenty with your own decisions. But you just then, you just don't remember much about twenty remember, years ago. <laughs> you don't remember the nuances of all of those decisions, and you might remember a couple factors, but all the nuances are gone, even from your own history, and let alone history of a few hundred years ago, and then even beyond that to go even further back than where we're talking today. It's just amazing how simplified we make history. Yeah, and so what we want to do today is we are going to explore some of the complicated people who lived back then. And one of the things that makes sort of a, a applying the, the complexities of personality to a historical context is oftentimes people didn't write down all of their innermost thoughts and feelings. So we, we, we often know what people did um, from the records, but unless somebody has been keeping a daily journal and very few people did, um, we don't, really know much about why they did it. Right in your journals, kids. Right in your journals, kids. <laughs> and oftentimes the people who who are famous, who we still remember today, we remember them because they wrote journals and because we have so much information, so much more information about them and their lives than we do about others. People like Thomas Jefferson or John Adams, the second president of the United States, we know so much about them and so much about their character because they wrote so much. Um, we have so many letters that they wrote to other people. Anyway. We also don't know much of anything about individual slaves because they mm -hmm. couldn't do those things. Right. Which is one of the saddest things about our history is I mean, slavery itself was awful. But even people living today don't have histories of their own families. They know up until a point, great, 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 whoever, grandma, grandpa was a slave. And they don't even know like their heritage countries of it. It's just, it all goes back to who wrote and who was able to write and how much they wrote and what they were able or what they chose to write about. And like writing is, that's what history is based off of. And, it, and not only that, but if, I mean, if you're going to study history at all, you have to make some generalizations. You, nobody, even people spend their entire lifetime studying a particular event or era of history or a particular person, and you will never know that event or that era or that person as well as the person you're studying. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. So there, and that means that there are details that are going to be left out. There are people whose stories 
might have been written down, but we don't remember them. So what we're going to explore today is some of the writings that we do have about people that you may not know about, but uh, after today, you will. So let's look first at uh, some of the lesser-known patriots. Uh, I want to first look at a very interesting guy by the name of John Dickinson. Um, if again, if you're if you're a lover of history, you've probably heard his name before. At the time, um, John Dickinson, who is considered to be one of the founding fathers of the United States, he was one of the most prominent figures of his time. Everybody knew who John Dickinson was. But in our day, his name has largely been forgotten. Uh, he was a very avid writer. Um, even before the Declaration of Independence, he was very prolific in writing letters and newspaper editorials and publishing pamphlets about the need for um, for the British government to recognize American civil liberties. And he was very clear in his denunciations of the things that the British Parliament was doing that he considered to be infringing on the the natural rights of the American colonists because they were British subjects. And because they were Englishmen, freeborn Englishmen, as he said, these are our, our natural rights that uh, our own government is denying to us. What makes Dickinson unique, though, is that even though he was a patriot and a very ardent patriot at that, he opposed independence from Great Britain. He worked very tirelessly for what he called reconciliation. His, his opinion was rather than separating ourselves from Great Britain, we should do everything that we can to fight for our natural rights within the system that we have. Um, he was one of only two delegates to the Continental Congress that approved the Declaration of Independence. He couldn't bring himself to sign it. And he was one of only two people there who he actually voted voted for the motion of independence, but he could not in good conscience bring himself to sign it. And he was he was much criticized for that. And he knew he knew that he would be. Um, so he was like a reformer. He was he was going for a reformation, not not revolution. independence. Yeah, exactly. And that's he. And going back to what you said earlier, if we were to bring those people into today, I think he would be very comfortable with us today because there are very few people in the United States today who are saying we don't like what the federal government is doing. Let's have our state declare independence from the country. I mean, it happens, but... Yeah, Texas. Texas, well, yeah. Well, Texas Texas has been an independent country, let's be fair. They've been there before. But my, my, my point is, he, his whole thing was, let's work within the system that we have to, to improve it. So when, when the, the Continental Congress on July 1st, 1776 began the debate um, on the Declaration of Independence that had been drafted by um, uh, by a committee headed by Thomas Jefferson. Um, Dickinson once again repeated you know, his opposition to declaring independence. He says, this isn't the right time. This isn't the right way for us to get our rights. Um, this is a really dangerous thing to do. And he ultimately had to refuse to sign it. And he said about that, he said, quote, my conduct this day, I expect, will give the finishing blow to my once too great, now too diminished popularity, end quote. In other words, this is going to end my political career, but I cannot in good conscience sign this. Sounds like Mitt Romney. <laughs> 
Well, you can edit that out if you don't want to keep it in there. Well, it, it, it's just interesting, you know. And and again, there were many people in his day on the Patriot side who who did consider his career to be over. They thought he was a traitor to the cause. They said, John Dickinson, you're not one of us anymore. But there were other people on the Patriot side who admired him for his integrity, that he would do what his conscience told him was right and he wouldn't bend to political pressure. But get this, Em, and this is this is what I think makes this guy so admirable to me. So okay. he's got, he, he's opposing independence. He's very much for liberty. He wants his people to be free. He just wants them to still be British, right? Mm -hmm. But when the Congress goes against him and when the Declaration of Independence is signed, he immediately marches off at the head of a Pennsylvania militia to join Washington's army in New England. So he couldn't in good conscience sign the Declaration, but once the decision had been made by the majority, he was all in. Yeah. I mean, isn't isn't that? I mean, what, how much how much courage is that? Like to state his opinion, like I'm not going for this, but if this is what the country, if this is, is what my doing? new my new country of Pennsylvania is going to be an independent country, then this is my country, and I will fight to defend my friends and my neighbors. You know, if we're gonna do this, I'm at least gonna try and make sure we win. So you he know? had his chance to state his personal opinion, and then when it was lost, he didn't keep fighting for it against his fellow people. He joined the cause, too. That's cool. Yeah, and he earned a lot of respect from his contemporaries for that, too. Sounds um, like uh, the primary elections. How so? Uh, like they spend six months fighting each other in their own party, and then once somebody is nominated... They all just back that person like they were the greatest to begin with. Well, it's a, you know, it's also what this is remarkable to me. And this is something that I think would be interesting to introduce today is that, I mean, this guy's a politician. He's not a soldier by trade. But when the Congress, when, when his legislature voted for war, he went and joined the war personally yeah, instead of sending true. sending other people off to war. He wasn't just tweeting about it in favor of the war. He went and participated. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's just immense, immense physical courage. Props Tr to you, Mr. Pro Dickinson. Props to you, Mr. Dickinson. All right. So if you haven't heard of John Dickinson, uh, he's a really interesting guy. You should learn more about him. Um Next, let's look at a completely different kind of person. Um, are we sticking with Patriots? Or are we going back and forth? Let's. Uh, we'll stick with Patriots for right now. Okay. Uh, this is a short one. This is a, a very, very young man by the name of Israel Trask. Uh, now, Israel Trask, uh, when uh, at the time of our story, this is about seventeen, yeah, seventeen seventy-five. Yeah, he was born in seventeen sixty-five. So when the shooting began, uh, he was ten. He was ten years a old. Baby. Okay, so Israel Trask is ten years old, uh, and he he's from Massachusetts. A fourth grader. Mm -hmm. At the time, the Continental Army, the Revolutionary Army, was surrounding the city and laying siege to it. Um, laying siege to the British inside Boston. And in the ultimate expression of take your son or daughter to work day, his father, Israel Trask's father, marches off to join the Revolutionary Army and brings his 10-year-old son along with him. Why? Just to watch or to fight? What well, You know, that's one of those things that we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> we, know we know that Trask was there. 
we have the records that uh, that he and his father were there, uh, but we, as far as I know, I haven't been able to find any writings from them about what would motivate them to do this. Um, we do know some of what Israel did, though. So Israel's duties, uh, as he wrote later in life, um, were the care of the baggage and the property of the mess. So it's the, the mess hall, the food. Uh, when the officers were called on duty, which was daily the case, either to mount guard or fatigue duties and fortifying the camp, my duty alternately was to take the edibles prepared at the mess to the officers on duty, which in some instance were miles distant. So he's, he's an errand boy. He's an errand boy and a caretaker for the camp, delivering meals from the mess hall to the guards who are out on duty, sometimes miles away from, from the kitchen. What kind of quality is this food that he has to note that they were edibles? Uh, I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that he says here. Uh, I do know from my own studies that at least at this part in the war, uh, the Americans were enjoying very good food. Um, the area, edible food. Edible food. The area around Boston had a very good harvest that year, and they were more than happy to share or sell with uh, the Continental Army later. That was not the case for the Americans, but at least at this point in the war, they had plenty to eat. So Israel Trask, uh, obviously he he wrote a lot about this later in life. Um, so he wasn't keeping a journal at the time, but when he was much older, um, was writing about his experiences. Um, he tells... This, this fascinating story about one of the things that he remembers was a, a fight that broke out between one of the regiments from Massachusetts and a regiment of riflemen from Virginia. Um, and this was in the middle of winter, so the argument turns into taunts, the taunts turn into a snowball fight, and the snowball fight turns into a real fight. <laughs> um, and according, according to him, he says, quote, in less than five minutes, more than a thousand combatants were on the field struggling for the mastery. So according to his memory, there's more than a thousand people between the Massachusetts and Virginia regiments slugging each other on this snow-covered field. Wait, so this is like two groups of the Continental Army fighting each other because of snowballs? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Where's your discipline? Well, so there there have been some... Uh, there's been some discussion about what exactly they were fighting about. Um, there's been... That some, one had ice in it. Some... No headshots. So, so here, well, let me let me read what Israel said. So Israel says that the the Marblehead men, that's the that's the Massachusetts regiment from Marblehead, Massachusetts, who were mostly sailors, by the way. Uh, they looked with scorn on such a rustic uniform that the the Virginia woodsmen had basically woodsman clothes and not a real uniform uh, when compared to their own round jackets and Fisher's trousers. And they directly confronted from 50 to 100 of the riflemen who were viewing the college buildings. They're, so they didn't like their clothes. They were making fun of their clothes. Um, there was some speculation from some historians that the Virginians were mocking the Massachusetts men because they had some freed blacks in the army. And of course the Virginians didn't because they weren't allowed Virginia. to. They weren't allowed to. The legislature didn't allow it, but there were obviously free blacks in the Massachusetts regiment. So anyway, turns into this huge fight. And he, he records this. He says, at this juncture, in the middle of this fight, General Washington made his appearance, whether by accident or design, I never knew. I only saw him with his colored servant, um, which is possibly referring to Billy Lee, uh, who was a, a body servant that was following General Washington around everywhere. Um, 
interesting guy. You should learn more about him later if you can. Anyway, uh, both of them mounted with the spring of a deer. He leaped from his saddle, threw the reins of his bridle into the hands of his servant, and rushed into the thickest of the melee with an iron grip, seized two tall, brawny, athletic, savage-looking riflemen by the throat, keeping them at arm's length, alternating, shaking, and talking to them. In this position, the eye of the belligerents caught sight of the general. Its effect on them was instantaneous flight at the top of their speed in all directions from the scene of the conflict. Less than 15 minutes' time had elapsed from the commencement of the row before the general and his two criminals were the only occupants of the field of action. What kind of effect is that going to have on a 10-year-old boy? To see this huge brawl of over a 1,000 people and General Washington, at least according to his memory, single-handedly disperses the mob. See, this, this is the kind of story that makes people idolize. Mm-hmm. George Washington. Because even we don't actually know what happened. We just remember, in the eyes of this 10-year-old boy, General Washington comes in and settles this big thing. Maybe it wasn't a 1,000 men. Maybe it was like 50. Right. And maybe he was not the only one who was trying to stop stuff. But in this 10-year-old kid's brain, this is what happened. Maybe it did actually happen. But this is how history is... Written and mythologized. Right. And, 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 yeah, and it brings up the question, like, did this actually happen this way? Is he remembering it correctly? He's but 10. He's 10, right? And he's writing about this decades later. But, you know, it, it, and we'll we'll get to this a little bit later. But it's, it's in the, the thing that makes Washington so interesting is that this idolizing of him and his character happened while he was still alive over and over again, (laughs) over and over again. And it was in large part, the attitude that people had this larger than life bearing and charisma that he had that made the difference. It was in large part, his personality that allowed the American cause to succeed. And what, I mean, whether people's image of him was actually correct or not, the fact is the image that people had of him drove the history of the time in large part it makes me want to meet him because i feel like i know nothing about him i just know all of these grand stories and i have no idea which of them are actually true if any but so for some reason he was big or charismatic enough for people to write them whether they were true or not it'd be interesting to see what he was actually like i didn't intend to to talk a lot about George Washington, but since you asked the question, I will put in a free plug for the book 1776 because again, again, because David McCullough talks a lot about this, um, that part of the reason why we have such a sort of larger than life, super charismatic image of George Washington is because he, and, and we know this from letters that he wrote to people, um, that even if he was feeling personally discouraged, and even though he knew that he had a lot of, flaws and shortcomings and he was very self-conscious about them and in some of his letters those come out like when he's writing to close friends but he believed that in his position of leadership it was really important for him to play the part of the guy who was never phased by anything the guy who was never troubled who was never upset who was always patient who was never discouraged he had to play that part because people had to see him that way in order for the cause to succeed. So he was in large part 
acting <laughs> much of the time and he knew it, but at, at least from the eyes of people like Israel Trask, he was very good at it. So let's move on to a completely different Patriots story. Um, and th- this is a guy um, you've probably never heard of, a guy by the name of Prince Whipple. Whipple. Whipple, Prince Whipple. Um, so he was, this guy is a really interesting story to me. Um, so he was not born in America. He was born in Ghana, in West Africa. And his parents were relatively wealthy. We don't know much about what that means. Um, most most of what we know about this guy comes from a book written in 1855. Um, it was a book that an abolitionist author wrote about uh, what was called Colored Patriots of the American Revolution. So yeah, it was. So a- this guy is black. He wasn't just like a British citizen who happened to be randomly born in yeah. Ghana. He was a black African yes. from Ghana. Yes. Okay. Yes. Black man born in Africa uh, to relatively well-off parents. We don't know if that means that they were some kind of nobility or wealthy merchant class or whatever. But the reason he's in America, um, contrary to what you might think, he didn't come here as a slave. When he was about 10, he was sent by his parents uh, with one of his cousins to America to be educated. Uh, He had an older brother who four years before had just returned to Ghana from America, um, and his parents wanted um, Prince to receive the same education that his older brother had gotten. Unfortunately, the captain who brought these two boys to America was a very unscrupulous fellow and knew that when they got to the colonies, the people there wouldn't know the difference between a free man and a black slave. So. When they got here, he took advantage of them and sold them as slaves in Baltimore. Mm. So they wound up in New Hampshire. And because Prince Whipple, as far as we know, didn't write anything himself, and we don't have much from the official record outside from this biography, but we do know that he was emancipated during the war uh, because of his, his service to the Patriot cause. And he was once, uh, and the reason he got his last name of Whipple is because he was owned by General William Whipple, um, who was a revolutionary general. Uh, and the general once entrusted him uh, to carry a large sum of money from one city to another. Um, he was attacked on the road and he fought off the people who were attacking him. Uh, he was well-loved, well-respected by every, all of the patriots that he interacted with. We don't really know much else about the guy. Uh, we have this brief biography of him, but I mean, I was going to ask if he ever made it back to no. to Ghana, but according to this, he he did not. He married. He died in Portsmouth. Yeah, he died in Portsmouth. So he did marry um, because he was emancipated. He was a freed man and he was allowed to marry after the revolution. Um, he married and died and had a family here in, in the United States. His but wife's name was Dinah. Wife's name was Dinah. But, you know, why did he sign up to fight for the revolution? What motivated him to do that? What were his thoughts on it? Did he ever have dreams of going back to Ghana? Did he ever see his parents again? Did he ever meet up with his cousin again? He probably never saw his parents We don't know. Again. Yeah, we don't know. And this is this is one of those complicating things. Like, we know that 
he fought for the revolution, but but why did he do it? You know, I mean, was he did he consider himself a dyed in the wool true blue American patriot? I mean, he wasn't even born here. He did, you know, did he still consider himself a foreigner? Was he was this just a pragmatic act to try and earn his freedom? I maybe mean, maybe he was trying to get back home, and then fell in love with Dinah, and quite possibly. To stay. We don't know, but it's, I mean, it's, it's this kind of nuance that, you know, makes, makes us question whether history is really as simple as our overgeneralized textbooks can make it seem. So let's, let's move on to a a similar story. Uh, A guy by the name of James Armistead Lafayette. Now we know a little bit more about this guy. This is another um, black patriot. Uh, he was a, an enslaved African-American who, like Prince Whipple, he served the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. Uh, he was interesting, though, because we do actually have some more official records on him. Is this the spy guy? This is the spy guy. Yeah. yeah. So, again, he was a slave. James Lafayette, James Armistead Lafayette. Um, he got the name Armistead from uh, the man who owned him was a a William Armistead of Virginia. And he got the name Lafayette because when he volunteered or was impressed, we don't know, however it was, he made it into the army. He was serving under the French commander, Marquis de Lafayette. And if you know your history of the revolution, he is a very prominent figure. And the, what he did for Lafayette, he didn't serve as a soldier. He served as a spy a double agent. So what he did is he would pose as a runaway slave and go to British encampments and say, Hey, I've run away from my master. I understand you guys have promised freedom to any blacks who run away and join the British cause, which was true. So he said he he offered his services to the British, but the whole time he was serving to, to the British commanders uh, as, as, as a, a camp servant, he was funneling information back to Marquis de Lafayette, who was then giving the information back to General Washington. And Do you think he ever had to kill a patriot? Don't know. Uh, I'm sure if you made a movie about it, there'd be some tense moment like that. But Yeah, there would. <laughs> Uh, the the thing is, if if his best friend, that's who it would be, right? His best friend, or his best friend from the Patriot Army before he was a spy, right? That's that's how you'd have to do it. Ugh. The thing the thing about being a spy is, if you're good at it, nobody really knows how you did it, and that's that's the way it was with James Armistead. We actually don't know very much about how he did what he did, how he gleaned the information that he did. Um, how he got the information back to the Patriots. So how do we know that he was successful? Well, we know this from from a couple of things. So we really have three official documents on this guy. The first is we have a, a petition after the war for his emancipation. So in 1782, a year before the treaty that ended the revolution, Virginia passed an act that allowed for the freedom of any slaves who had fought in the revolution. Uh, and there were, there were several of those, like we just, we just mentioned with Prince Whipple. Um, James Armistead, though, was not a soldier. He was serving as a spy, which didn't fall under this act. So instead, he sent 
with with, um, with the help of his master, actually, of William Armistead, they together sent a petition to the Virginia legislature asking for an exception for James. William wanted permission to set James free because of the service that he had given. So he lived in Virginia. So there was like a law that you couldn't, as a slave owner, just choose to set your slaves free? Correct. Correct. There were a lot of restrictions on that. Stupid. It, it, very stupid. But it's it's something that a lot of people don't realize that there were actually state laws that in in many instances did not allow for slave owners to simply set their slaves free without certain exceptions. So slaves weren't even like personal property of the white people who bought them. They were property of the government. Yeah, there's a whole a whole lot of bad things about slavery that we could dive yep. into. I don't want to. I mean, I do, but that's not what this is about. I, I, you know, I don't think it'd make a very good episode. I'd have a hard time finding a pro-slavery argument. Uh, yeah, let's not do that. <laughs> so they, they send this petition into the legislature, and it is granted. So he is set free. He is allowed to be a free man. And we later get, well, with, with this petition... They include a letter, an endorsement signed by General Lafayette himself, personally endorsing how invaluable James's service was as a double agent. Ah. And again, it doesn't tell us very much about his methods, because again, if... Trust me, he did a good job. Right, right. So Lafayette basically just saying... He basically won the war. <laughs> something like that, with uh, their usual customary hyperbole of the day. Um, and fancy wax seals. Fancy fancy things. wax seals and, and perfumed envelopes and the like. So we know that James did a good job. Uh, we don't really know what he did. Um, and then later we have a petition um, that he, several years later, he, he issued a, another petition to Virginia asking for monetary compensation for his services. Um, the soldiers had gotten paid. He wasn't a soldier. He wasn't paid. So about, I think it was about 10 years later, he said, hey, can I get some money? And he was paid something. I don't know how much it was, and it probably wasn't comparable to the soldiers, but but he did he did receive something. But that's well, really... your notes say that he was granted 60 bucks. Oh, there you go. And a $40 annual pension for his services. So how about that? That doesn't sound bad. So, I mean, I have no concept of what time and money or money was like back in that time. But that seems like, I don't know, you'd earn, what, like a, a dollar for a week's worth of work something normally? Like the, something like that, so yeah. So 40 bucks, that's like 40 weeks of working every year. It's better in the, spit, better in the spit in the eye. For sure. But As again, my dad says. <laughs> but this is a guy that I wish we knew more about. Um, we don't have any of his writings we don't again we don't really have we we have a record of what he did what we don't have is the human story why did he do it what, i want to know what was he thi- what was he thinking about while he did it uh in in brian's notes there's a picture of him and i want to know who took the time to sketch this guy so uh, this is a sketch art back then was not just like willy-nilly yeah this is a sketch from Lafayette's certificate of commendation. Yeah, so, so somebody somebody like, took the time to sketch this guy. Yep. Fancy high up station in the the military took the time to sketch this black spies person. 
Mm-hmm. He looks very regal. Yeah. So, I mean, regardless of what, you know, uh, of, you know, we've already talked about the, the, the stupid laws in Virginia and in other states regarding uh, people of color and, and slavery and all the rest of it. it black people. Black people. Yeah. I mean, there weren't any Latinos in slavery. <laughs> For this guy, at least, he, there were many people who thought very, very highly of him and wanted him to be rewarded for that. I think highly of him. Yeah, I do too. I mean, that's Good job, that, sir. That's a gutsy job. You know, I mean, the there are certainly stories of atrocities committed against prisoners of war. So if you're an American soldier and you were captured, you were probably going to have a rough time on a British prison ship or dying of smallpox in a prisoner camp or maybe just getting bayoneted if the guys who captured you had had a hard day. But I mean, if you were a spy and they captured you, it was, it was death. No question. Yeah. No question. But this guy, and I I can't even imagine, you know, if you were a black spy, how much less concern would they have had at the time for you? But he, he took that on and uh, apparently did a really good job. So bravo to him. Hey, so uh, we're coming up on your time, and we still haven't even gotten to the Loyalists yet. So how about a two-parter? I think we will have to do a two-parter. Yeah, so you guys definitely need to tune in for the next episode, um, because we will talk about the other side, the Loyalist side, and that's where I think things start to get really interesting. Juicy! Juicy! Before we wrap things up, though, let's cover two more people that I want to get to really quick. Okay. First, let's go to a guy named Joseph Lewis Cook. Uh, And this was a guy that I had never heard of uh, until I started researching this episode. But he, I mean, this guy, there's, you want to talk about a complex backstory. This guy has so much going on. So Joseph Lewis Cook, as he was known to white people or his Mohawk name, which I'm going to butcher, um, Akiaton Haronquin. Uh, I apologize for anybody who actually knows how to say that. Um, so he's an Iroquois leader. From the Mohawk tribe. From the Mohawk tribe. But he was also a commissioned officer in the Continental Army during the American Revolution. So this guy's mother is Mohawk, specifically from the Abenaki people, which was a, a subset of the Mohawks, as I understand. And his father was African. So he's born in a village in New York. And he and his mother are taken captive in a French Mohawk raid. Uh, oh, okay. So his his mother is Abenaki. So that's a separate tribe. But when he's a child, he and his mother are captured by the Mohawks in oh, a raid. So he's not actually Mohawk he's not Mohawk. By birth. He's so he is. But what? Kidnapped. If, yeah. If you don't know this. Um, a lot of the, the Native Americans are First Nations. I don't know the right word for it anymore, but it was common practice for them to adopt prisoners of war or captives into their families and raise them now as members of the tribe. And it was, I mean, if if you were adopted by a Mohawk family, you were just as Mohawk as somebody who was born there. And Like Sakagawea, that happened to her. Yeah, so that's why she was in the plains and not further out west where her original tribe was. Yeah, exactly. If if you've ever seen the movie Dances with Wolves, there's that that character, his love interest stands with a fist, right? I've never seen. There, there's a lot of that movie that's fictional, but you know, it, it, it's the same thing. Captured by an by a 
by a different tribe and raised as a member of that tribe. So that's what happened to this guy. So he's got an African father, an Abenaki mother. He's captured and raised as a Mohawk uh, in a village south of Montreal. A lot of cultural identities. Yeah. So then his mother dies. We don't know what happened to his father. Um, He sort of disappears from the records, but his mother dies soon after he's captured. And so he's taken in by French-speaking Catholic missionaries. Who take care of him. Um, so <laughs> this guy has so many cultural identities going on. And what's amazing is that he, he learned to speak all of these languages fluently. So, I mean, he's, he's, well, he's speaking Mohawk, various other Iroquois languages. He speaks French. Um, and so during the Revolutionary War, Cook, as, who has become an influential leader in the Mohawk society, supports the cause of independence, and he joins the fight against the British, which was... Because the French were backing the Continental Army. Possibly. Well, they were. Yeah, yes, the French definitely they saved, were. They saved our butt. <laughs> what, 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 what I'm saying is, Joseph Lewis Cook, Akiaton Haronquen never wrote about why he did it. I haven't been able to find anything about why he took the side that he did. And it's so interesting because most of the Iroquois opted for either neutrality or they joined the British side. And they had a lot of good reasons to join the British side, which we'll talk about next time when we get to the Loyos. But this guy was with the minority. He was with the minority of the Iroquois. Well, he was associated with the French. Right. right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's probably why. It could have been. That's that's a good theory. But you're saying we just don't know that. We just we just don't know that, oh. right? Because well, because many of these Iroquois had also sided with the French in the French and Indian War or the Seven Years' War. Got it. Because they were opposing the British expansion. But now that the British are holding back the American expansion, many of the Iroquois thought it was better to support the British. But we'll, again, we'll get to that in the next episode. So this guy, he he's got all these cultural identities going on, and he decides to side with the American patriot cause. And so he formed sort of his own, I guess, war band <laughs> composed of Oneida warriors. And what's interesting is that actually the Oneida warriors that he had with him were actually the minority. What's interesting about this guy is that, so he, again, black father, Native American mother, and most of the people that he attracts to follow him were white people white frontiersmen who are serving under this guy's militia in support of the Patriot cause. Just so many, so many complicating things going on in this guy's life. So he was really high ranked. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually what, uh, what he's kind of most remembered for today. Uh, and why in, you know, in, in communities where, where he had a big historical presence, he's most remembered is that he was the highest ranked officer in the Continental Army of Native American descent that we know of. And black? Yeah, and and the the only commissioned officer of known African descent. Uh, The only? Yeah. I mean, there were probably officers who may have had African ancestors, but it wasn't obvious. But he was the only one that everybody knew his father was African, and he was still given a commission as an officer in the Continental Army. It was very rare at the time. Sweet. Yeah. So obviously he's uh, accomplishing a lot of things. He 
He was given the nickname of Colonel Lewis. That's what most of the white people called him. Uh, and he was commissioned as a lieutenant colonel. Um, and again, we could we could sort of go through his uh, – he had a very successful, very storied career in the Army, was present at a lot of the most famous battles. But again, I mean, he he has to deal over and over again with so many of those problems of his conflicting identity. So, so did he have to fight his own people? I'm sure. So a lot in, of them in were part, loyalists. in part, and we'll and we'll get to that a little again a little more next time when we talk about loyalists. Um, one of his probably his his arch rival, I guess, to use the phrase, another very influential. Iroquois leader who sided with the British was a guy by the name of Joseph Brant Tyendinagia. So these guys are nominally from the same nation. They take opposite sides on this issue and they continue to be sort of adversaries for the rest of their lives because of this one split that they had over the revolution. But if you take that out of the picture, they have so much in common because both, both the Iroquois who sided with the British and people like Joseph Cook, who sided with the Americans after the war, had to fight tooth and nail against the new United States government to preserve their lands and yeah. preserve their autonomy and preserve their rights. The difference was that but they still didn't unite. Right. They still didn't unite. And the difference was just the the position, you know, the loyalist, the, the natives who sided with the British were doing it, obviously, from the position of former enemies and people like Joseph Cook are doing it from the position of we sacrificed our lives and we sided with you guys and made enemies of our own people in order to help you in your war for independence. We would like a little bit of respect right. for our own lands. And this was basically his struggle for for the rest of his life. This sounds like people on both sides of our political spectrum who are like generally fed up with how government doesn't serve them, but they still cling to their party to be the ones who are going to fix it. So we, we agree that the government is treating us poorly, but we're not going to unite in some way to make it better. Right. Yeah. Again, it's just it's not very useful. It's just a super. I mean, think about a guy who's got so many conflicting loyalties going on. He's African. He's one native tribe, but he's also another native tribe. He's French. He's Catholic, but he's also native. But he also speaks English, and he's an American. And he, French. And French, but he's also not being treated as an American citizen because his property rights mean nothing. So and he's like, not white. And he's not white. I mean, like, what What do you do? <laughs> what do you do? And, th and these are the sort of complicating things that are all through and through history. Well, it sounds like he fought. He fought during the war. He fought after the war. He was, he just fought. Mm-hmm. Fought for what he thought. Yeah. <laughs> Foffer, what he thought. I like that. So let's uh, let's take a look at one last person here, um, who's I, I wanted to save this for last, not only because he's this author is sort of the most anonymous out of all the people, but also because I think this encapsulates so well why all of this complexity we've talked about gets boiled down into either idolizing or demonizing people like Washington and Jefferson and all the rest. So this guy is only known by the moniker of Sergeant R. Um, we don't know. That's mysterious already. Yeah. We don't know 
what his full name is. We don't know where he's from. But he, the reason we know about this guy is he, in 1832, so obviously years after the revolution, so he's an old man, but he, he published basically a, a short memoir of his experiences as presumably a sergeant uh, for the Patriot Army in, uh, and his, specifically his encounters with General Washington. So, and there's a lot of interesting things in here that that we could go over, but there's just one one little spot in here that I that I wanted to touch on because this is so theatrical, but so interesting. Again, if you don't know what's happening here, um, this is at the end of the year 1776, and yes, the Americans are very proud of their Declaration of Independence, but everything else in terms of the war has gone terribly. Washington's army is less than a tenth of what it used to be, mostly from soldiers deserting or defecting. Literally tens of thousands of American soldiers simply left and went home, um, just decided they'd had enough of the fight and took off. Uh, the British Army was growing stronger every day with more and more soldiers landing. Uh, in fact, uh, the British landed more soldiers in New York than the population of Philadelphia at the time, which was the largest city on the continent. Oh, boy. Yeah. So if you think that, what, what, what's, this is how the French people saved our behinds. Yeah. If so, I'm siding with the Patriots, because that's what I was conditioned to do. Yeah. This was the largest overseas expeditionary force that anyone had ever sent ever, is what the British sent against the American forces. And they whipped them pretty soundly. Uh, and it's in the middle of winter. Everybody's discouraged. The army is tiny. They're starving. And on top of all of that, every, every single one of Washington's soldiers, including Sergeant R, has signed up for a temporary enlistment, which was common at the time. You would sign up to serve for a given amount of time, and once your time was up, you were free to go home. And the idea was that we would eventually recruit new people to take your place. Well, that wasn't happening. <laughs> they weren't getting any new recruits because everybody was discouraged. So... It's the last day of December. It's December 31st. So on the new year, January 1st of 1777, the enlistments of the entire army are up and everybody is free to go home. So if Washington doesn't do something, he is not going to have any army at all tomorrow. So he calls out the entire army and begs them to re-enlist, but nobody does. And now I'll, I'll read directly from what Sergeant R has written. And this is his eyewitness account. He says, quote, the soldiers, worn down with fatigue and privations, had their hearts fixed on home and the comforts of the domestic circle, and it was hard to forego the anticipated pleasures of the society of our dearest friends. The general wheeled his horse about, rode in front of the regiment, and addressing us again said, My brave fellows, you have done all I asked you to do and more than could be reasonably expected. But your country is at stake, your wives, your houses, and all that you hold dear. You have worn yourselves out with fatigues and hardships, but we know not how to spare you. If you will consent to stay only one month longer, you will render that service to the cause of liberty and to your country, which you probably never can do under any other circumstances. The present is emphatically the crisis, which is to decide our destiny. The drums beat the second time. The soldiers felt the force of the appeal. One said to the other, I will remain if you will. Others remarked, we cannot go home under such circumstances. 
A few stepped forth, and their example was immediately followed by nearly all who were fit for duty in the regiment, amounting to about 200 volunteers. And that's the, that's the end of the quote from, uh, from Sergeant R. So I knew that story. You did? Yeah. You didn't know that story? Did I you feel know, like did everybody you, knows that story. Did you everybody know that that, knows. Wasn't, that wasn't just mythology that came from a guy who was there? Well, I figured that, but I didn't know it was this guy. This anonymous guy, this yeah. Sergeant R guy. Which that's which just I, a story like, oh poor George Washington and his army all left him, and then the next day he wasn't gonna have an army, and he gave this great speech and everybody decided to stay on for another month. Like I feel like that's a pretty well known story. I just didn't know that from this guy is where we get it. Yeah, this is where it came from. Um Sweet. Thanks, yeah, Sergeant Arn. Thanks, Sergeant Arn. Yeah, and the rest the rest of his account is actually how we know a lot of things about what happened at the the Battle of Trenton is what this is talking about. If you've ever seen the famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware, um, that's what happens right after this. So he takes his newly formed army who's sticking around for one more month and they attack Trenton and it's a huge victory. And then the next day they attack at Princeton or maybe a few days later, I don't remember. But anyway, it's a really big deal in the history of the revolution. And this guy was there. So and, and I think this is this is a great place to end because we sort of we started by asking ourselves how does the immense complexity of personality and character and how you know none of these people know how the story is going to end they're all rolling the dice whatever side they choose to fall on they're taking a huge gamble either way and what is it that prompts them to choose this side or that you know because they don't know what's going to happen and you know. Whether whether this guy is remembering Washington's speech exactly right or not, the point is this is the impact that it had on him. Like to this day, he remembers it being a deeply moving experience, you know. And I think I think what uh, what uh, what we read at the beginning with uh, with David McCullough is so true. Like it is often personality and character and people's personal experiences with other people is what drives the flow of choice and therefore the flow of history so often. So guys, how important is it to understand the people around us, especially the people we don't agree with? How much differently could things have gone if we hadn't felt the need to fight people because they disagree with us? Could have been different. We wouldn't have a country. We wouldn't have a country. Maybe. Maybe it could have just happened differently. Canada's a free country. Never fought a war of independence. Sure. Go Patriots! Anyway, that's our exploration of the Patriot side. And, and again, you guys, we are only scratching the surface. The point is just to show the lives uh, of a couple of people and just try to understand why they did what they did and just realize that, you know, for any given individual person, their life and their motivations and their passions, their ideas, their philosophies are often much more complicated than, than we tend to realize. So. Next time. On our part two. On our part two. Loyalists. The loyalists. And this. So interesting. Yeah, this is where I think it really gets interesting. Because if there was ever a story that needs to be told that's been largely forgotten, it's the story of the American loyalists. So definitely tune in next time. We're going to hear from some fascinating, fascinating historical figures that I know you've never heard of. So join us next time. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.
Thank you for joining me on this episode of Bury the Hatchet. I hope you've learned something today to help you better understand the people in your life, especially those you disagree with. For suggestions or questions about the show, shoot me an email at podcastburythehatchet at gmail.com. Again, that's podcastburythehatchet at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time.